This is Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690 with Brent Martineau and Austin Lane. Oh, everybody's trying to figure it out. Everybody is trying to find a way to just in case be a little bit right if Trevor Lawrence does not work out. <laughs> Go Brent, the, la- the latest, the Hall of Famer. Austin Lane, curious on social media. We got that on the way. I'm sitting in my house today, maybe for the last time because I lost another one yesterday in a big bet. Holy cow, Gonzaga, what happened to you? Baylor dominating. What an impressive performance by the Baylor Bears as they get it done and uh, complete one of the best stories in really sports histories when you're talking about comebacks or, as Jim Nance put it, rebounds, uh, even though Nobody on CBS wanted to reference exactly what went on uh, some 18 years ago. Brent Martineau, here on the road once again. Austin Lane in the Action Sports Jack Studios. Coos along the way as well. My goodness, as good as that game was Saturday night. What a snoozer last night. I really just wanted to be close, and uh, it wasn't that entertaining, but it was dominant. It was very dominant. You know, shout out to the Baylor Bears. Um, everyone was riding that Gonzaga hype train. Thankfully, because uh, so my friend and I back home in Wisconsin, we have our annual uh, championship bet for the NCAA tournament. And thankfully, I took Baylor. So they were big for me in that standpoint. And yeah, I guess you're just kind of getting one last feel for that house before you lose it. Because it's <laughs> the third house that you lost now, I believe, in your in your. Yeah, in your house bets. Yeah, it is uh, third yeah. house that I've uh, lost. So, my goodness, I'm gonna have to watch that. I, I really felt good about Baylor. I hated the narrative a little bit last night. Um, I think it was said a bit in the broadcast, and I think it was on social media. I don't believe that they were spent from Saturday night. I don't buy that because I have seen just as many really emotional, big wins, uh, dramatic things happen in sports where the next day they just roll, you know? So I don't know if I buy that, Austin. I mean, I get the concept of it. I just think I could come up with so many different um, instances where there was a game six that was so emotional and then game seven, that same team won. And so I, I just don't buy that. I don't think they were gassed. I think they were just outplayed in every facet of the game. I mean, they shoot the three ball so well. Baylor does. And then on top of that, they brought a little bit of Houston with them with all the offensive rebounds. And then they bring a little bit of Abilene Christian with them with the way they play defense. Or UCLA, if you will, the way they play defense most of the tournament. I mean, they were just a mix of everything and too much to handle for Gonzaga. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if that game Saturday was the deciding factor of why Gonzaga got beat, but it was evident in terms of crashing the boards, in terms of, you know, playing that aggressive defense, in terms of hustling the basketball. Uh, Baylor had their number in every single category. Um, Gonzaga just looked a little flat. Now, don't get me wrong. It also helps when you're shooting lights out in the first half, like Baylor did from literally anywhere on the floor. But, not only did they shoot lights out, but like you said, when they did miss, they got those offensive rebounds. When the, you know when there was like a 50-50 ball, it was usually Baylor's to have. So I get Baylor, you know, shot their their, their hearts out, and that you know, I mean, you're not going to beat anybody when they shoot like that. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time, I think the lack of aggressiveness, whatever the reason may be, um, showed on Gonzaga's side. 
And when you see a team that hasn't lost a game all season, you see a team that has NBA caliber talent and, you know, they, they have all-star talent, it begs the question if they were a little flat from Saturdays because what else would you attribute it to? Well, I think a little bit of they got thrown off their game because Suggs gets the, the, the foul so early. And so when you take your guy off the court that quickly, I think that sets you into a kind of a weird place. And then before you know it, you look up, it's 9, nine nothing. it's it's uh, uh, 16 to 4, it's 23 to 8. Well, now you're talking about a really good basketball team that you got to climb back in. And i, I got to be honest, I thought the whole time I was like, they get to 10 points, they're going to make a run in the second half, and we're going to get back to a good game here. I don't know if they're going to win because they might spend too much getting back in it. But I mean, it was just so dominant after that. So, like, I, I would have, I'll say this. And this is maybe a ridiculous statement on my part. But I think Gonzaga is really good. Like, really good. I don't know if I would have classified them as, like, the greatest team of all time, even if they had gone undefeated. I think these two teams, like we've mentioned so many times, there was separation in college basketball, maybe more than we've seen it, that we can remember. Two really good teams, and the rest, hey, they're some pretty good teams, but I don't know if they're this good. I really believe that. And Baylor, by the way, is obviously right there with Gonzaga. I thought there was a little separation between those two. But this might sound ridiculous. If they were to play again Saturday night, I wouldn't have a problem picking Gonzaga. Uh, I I think they're good enough to beat Baylor. I just think they played way better, put a perfect game plan together, played harder, played all those things. I mean, that's just what happens in sports sometimes. But I wouldn't say Baylor's going to win 8 out of 10 of those games if they matched up. Uh, I think it's going to be a really good game 10 out of 10 times. So, well, eight out of ten times, and maybe yeah. one time or another you just play lights out, and maybe Gonzaga would play lights out. I, I'm just telling you, I wouldn't, I didn't lose like, oh, my gosh, they were a fraud the whole year. Like, that wasn't it to me in Gonzaga. I think Gonzaga is legitimately good. I think Baylor just played unbelievable in front of the big stage under the lights. I definitely don't think Gonzaga was a fraud because they still got the championship game in the tournament. And regardless of, you know, what the regular season schedule looked like, like they're, they're still a fantastic team. But when you're Baylor and you double the, the the amount of steals that Gonzaga had, when you double, um, you know, essentially the amount of blocks that Gonzaga had, when you double the amount of rebounds that Gonzaga had, and when you're Gonzaga and you shoot better field goal percentage than Baylor actually did, and you still win that game decisively, it just shows that in terms of athleticism, stick-to-itiveness, and want more, Baylor's on a different plane. They're on a different level. And... You know, I, I'm not sure, like, if they played ten times, I think Baylor would win at least seven of those times. I really do. I think they're just – I think their style of play – and once again, whether you want to attribute it to Gonzaga being tired from Saturday or not, but just their style of play and their want to, um, it, it just seemed like no matter how much of a comeback Gonzaga was going to make, Baylor was not going to be denied. Yeah, I, I well, then that was the case. I mean, they got it down to nine, and I think they even had another possession to get it down again. Or maybe it was Baylor went back and scored, but then there were two or three possessions in a row. Suggs missed a layup, kind of threw up a wild shot. There was an open three. Maybe they missed a, maybe it was in that intentional foul phase where they missed a free throw, then didn't even get the shot. Could have been like a four or five point possession. It was a one point possession. And then Baylor just goes down and boom, three, three. <laughs> I mean, offensive rebound. It just wasn't stopping. And so at that point, and I remember, uh, Somebody said, hey, Brent, there's still like 12 minutes to go. I was like, it's over, man. I mean, we've seen sports. We know this. I mean, when you when you take the blow 
You're up 17, 18, 19 points. You take the blow. You get down to nine. You have a couple more chances to make it eight, seven, six, and you don't. And then that next that team just goes and puts two three-pointers on you, another offensive rebound, another hoop, and it's back up to 17. It's over, baby. I don't care how much time was left on the clock. They could have played until this morning. Yeah. <laughs> and Gonzaga wasn't going to beat him. So I just all the credit to Baylor. I mean, I thought they were terrific. Uh, I just in the in this, I don't want to lose Gonzaga because people will say, well, they don't play in a Power Five conference, and they do this all the time. They just can't win the big thing. I think that team was legit, and it does make me ask this: Will Mark Few ever win one? Now he's already the odds-on favorite to win next year. But I really thought this team was good in this landscape of college basketball where there were like two teams above everybody else in my estimation. But when you get by Saturday night, the biggest scare of the season for Gonzaga, I'm not sure if he'll ever win one now, man. I really thought this was the chance. And I'm not one of those guys. I don't get over dramatic and like, oh, yeah, of course, I'll never win one. Well, that felt like the time to win one for Gonzaga. It felt like it was their time more than any other time I remember. Yeah, it's hard to imagine with everything that transpired this year and the talent that Gonzaga had, like it seemed like this was going to be the year for them. Um, You know, uh, I'm not sure going forward if they ever are going to get there. Uh, I just feel like if you couldn't win it this year, you may never win it. So I agree with you with Mark Few. How good is the story? Uh, for Baylor, in your estimation, um, we talked a little bit about it. We've had Matthew Driscoll on. We know he's a part of it. I mean, it's really cool. Matthew Dr- If you listen to Scott Drew talk after the game, by the way, you can tell Matthew Driscoll and Scott Drew spent some time on the same coaching staff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah. It, they, are, they are very much alike um, in terms of their energy and, and, and just their humility and also um, – they're praised for the other team, respect. I mean, they're praised for their own guy. Just a lot of it sounded alike. And by the way, Matthew Driscoll has done an unbelievable job with UNF starting this program. And Scott Drew has done one of the all-time jobs in college basketball from uh, when he arrived on campus, the the depths that that program was in. I mean, you can think SMU death penalty in football years back. Uh, you can get as far down the, the depths as you can get and he pulled them out of there. It took time, and he's been good now for a while, but it took time in the early stages. They were patient. Uh, He was patient, and now to some 18 years later, end up in in a national championship, and I didn't realize that they're just the second Texas school to win a national title in college basketball. That was stunning to me. I don't know why that never registered. Is Houston the first then, or who was the first team? What what was the the stat then? That doesn't. They said uh, it wasn't Houston that they referenced. I'll look that part up. Uh, but they referenced oh, Texas State. Well, because Texas State won one, didn't they? That's who they were referencing, I believe. Or um, I, I looked that up. But they they mentioned a stat. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, the Houston's and. I'm I'm not sure if Houston ever won one. I thought they they would win. They, they would win one. But maybe, maybe they not. just had five slam jamma that year. Did they not win to? Um, uh, that was NC State, maybe right. Yeah, I guess so. They were, the, State. they were the tournament runner-up back in 83 and 84. To, oh, to NC State. And who else won it? Do you remember? No idea. Okay. Uh, Wasn't born yet. 83, 84. NC State was one of them. Okay. Uh, that would have won. And so, yeah, I think just I think I did see it right then. So yeah. the second national championship in the state of Texas. Isn't that bizarre? It's wild. I know it's a football state, but that's bizarre. Bottom line is, how good's the story? Yeah, I mean, so like when you say the, the the story, are you referring like 
I mean, I think it's a great story in terms of Baylor was on, you know, literally they, they were a school of, you know, they were like the little brother to the Longhorns and TCU. And then, you know, their the football team starts to come around a little bit and their basketball team starts to come around. I mean, I think it's a great story from the standpoint of they're always kind of like the forgotten school in Texas. And they're like the little brother, um, it seems like, sometimes in Texas. And they're a team that we don't really talk about a lot, even in terms of college basketball, but they've kind of seemed to, to override that now, and obviously they're champions. Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest story is, though, they had a player kill another player in 2003. I mean, yeah. that's how bad it was. I mean, that's that's what Jim Nance was referencing. CBS was hesitant to say it. But, I mean, to go from a, a school that, I mean, no, who would want to go there? There's a great article today in The Athletic about just how far um, they've come. There'll be a movie about it. I mean, there's got to be a movie about it yeah, at some point. Uh, I, I mean, okay, so I, I get it. When when we talk about that murder that occurred at Baylor between you know the, the two basketball players, I understand that. And then, you know, the coach takes over, and then they actually showed the clip last night where they said, you know, basically he's going to take over and there's going to be winning around Baylor and all this stuff. So we changed the entire culture around. But to me, it's almost like the same thing like when the Kansas City Chiefs won their Super Bowl. It wasn't like they were saying, well, you know, how do you guys, what do you, how do you guys feel about since, you know, Javon Belcher killed himself in your parking lot? Yeah. Or like if it's Andy Reid, hey, how do you feel, you know, since when you, your son um, lost his life? Like, I, I understand, like, it's part of the story, but it, it's such a dark part of the story. And it was so long ago. Like, I wonder if it even warrants telling that in that moment when, you know, those players weren't even around for that. Yeah, well, that's a fair point. That's kind of something I was interested in, too. Uh, Texas Southwestern, by the way. Thanks, Josh Baker. He's, uh, that was the other school okay. uh, that won in Texas, and which I still think is amazing. I mean, because you feel like Texas, the Longhorns, Houston, like we mentioned, it almost feels like Houston did win, as we're saying. And they were runner up a couple times. Um, but so for Baylor just to be the school in Texas, to mm-hmm. your point, is a heck of a story. But what I was a little surprised at in you can't tell Baylor's story without bringing up the fact that this century, less than two decades ago, they had a player kill another player, and there was an exodus, and it was like an untouchable place to be. And this guy, Scott Drew, goes in there and says, I can do it. I can fix it. We can fix it. We're going to turn it around. We're going to do it. It's not about the death, actually, of, of – and and – just that awful situation, but it's about a guy going in there and saying, I'm willing to go help change this place around in Waco, Texas, and doing it. And so, But you have to reference it, and CBS didn't reference it at all. And I'm not even telling you, man, they should ask the players about it or even Drew about that because the players weren't even alive at that time, so many of them, um, when all that happened, but they're certainly aware. I was a little surprised CBS – maybe earlier in the broadcast, at times in the broadcast, did not mention that up to the casual viewers, to know then what Jim Nance's punchline at the end of the game was all about. Even his line of questioning was all about, what did they rebound from? Like, if I'm a – I didn't – Steph didn't even know that story. I told her. So why, if I'm a viewer, I'm like, oh, what did they rebound from? Why is this this great comeback story? Like, from what? Mm. Just because they're Baylor in a Texas school? I just thought they did a – poor job of giving it any context and whether you like it or not it's part of the story i mean it, it's a dark part of the story but it's part of the story if smu football would ever make it back and and win big we would talk about the death penalty that they incurred and the problems that they had and uh, uh, at that school right i mean we would do that. that that would be part of the con- 
context of it. I was really surprised that CBS, NCAA, and I'm sure the NCAA had a little bit of part of this, didn't kind of explain that, set it up at some point during the broadcast um, more in depth to kind of pay it off at the end. It's part of the movie. It's part of the story for Baylor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get where you're coming from, um, and, and the fact that you know that they kind of teased it and then they didn't really address it. Like, I, I get that part, but I don't know. Like, to, to to me, winning the championship and like in that moment, like that's a very very special moment. And then you you want to rehash something that happened in what 2003 Three, yeah. it would have been. I, I don't know. Like, I don't think it takes away. I mean, maybe it does. M- maybe going back to 2003. And talking about the death that occurred, maybe that takes away from the moment now. Like, I, obviously, Scott Drew knows what happens. I'm sure those players have heard about it before. Even oh, they with, know it. Yeah, and, and they know what happened as well. But, like, once again, like, they're – and he even said it himself. Like, you know, this was the players' win. Like, this was all of them. So, like, to me, you're going to take away that win a little bit if you address something that happened in 2003 that they weren't a part of. Just my opinion. Yeah, well, maybe they thought the same. I, yeah. I, I think it was a little deeper. I Again, I'm not sitting here telling you you need to do it every three minutes, but if your end the line is going to be about a comeback or a rebound or or all of those kind of words, well, then I, I what are we coming back from? <laughs> yeah, but, I just, yeah, but I mean, you gotta, you know, you got to give me the context of it. Yeah, but Brent, what was the story of this tournament, though? Was the story of those kids that, you know, literally – manhandled Gonzaga when nobody's really giving him a chance, the, the the almighty Gonzaga, was the story of those kids on the court and, and how Scott Drew got him to play as hard as you know they could? Or is the story something back from 2000 uh, and then three? I, I, I think the story was those kids and just how impressive they were that night. Yeah, and by the way, and I thought that was represented as well. I mean, they did have like a three-week hiatus because of COVID-19. I guess I'm a little bit fatigued on the, I know it was a tough year for everybody to make it through, but everybody's got that with COVID-19. Like, that doesn't make Baylor unique. Um, So many schools had to do that. Now, it's part of the story and incredible when you make it to the finish line. What makes Baylor unique is, is Scott Drew. And the job that he's done. I mean, it's why I keep calling it one of the best stories in sports. And for no context or or, or no description of that at all was just a bit surprising to me um, from a storytelling point of view. I I just don't think we see that very often um, in in sports uh, to not set it up yet kind of deliver the finish of it. Well, well, uh, and it's not on the kids. I get it. I, you don't want to – that doesn't necessarily take away from it. it. To me, what I'm trying to do, I think it celebrates what these guys have done even more so. They were a part of something that, that I mean, it's really – that you can be deep down in the depths of things and end up on, on the mountaintop, man. I mean, that's – that's uh, No, I hear you, but then – That's a you, metaphor for life. I mean, that, that's – and these kids are a part of that. But then – so do you think then when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl – and, you know, Javon Belcher fatally killed his girlfriend and then himself in that parking lot. And obviously that was a, a huge strategy for that locker room because essentially I remember when I came in there, because I was there right after yeah. it kind of happened. And I remember the, the the somberness and I remember just the, the eerie feeling of how hurt everybody was. And then you had Andy Reid come in and really kind of take this whole thing over. Like when the Chiefs won that Super Bowl and we're talking about Patrick Mahomes and how great he was, like should that question have been brought up then with, with Javon Belcher? Like, hey, so you guys have come a long way since Javon Belcher. What are your thoughts about that? Like don't you think that takes away the moment from a lot of those guys on the field currently? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question, and it's a good way to put it. And I, what I don't know is if that didn't happen. Like Maybe that question was asked at some point, but probably more on a local uh, level for the Chiefs. Um, you know, the Chiefs organization goes way, way back in terms of tradition and other things that have occurred. Uh, maybe it's the nature of college sports because we know SMU death penalty. We know this situation as unique as it was and as uh, tragic as it was for Baylor. That's why I know Baylor basketball, man. That's why I know Baylor basketball. I, I don't know if the, the death of Belcher was why I know Kansas City Chiefs football. So I do think it's a bit different in that context. Um, there are 32 teams in the NFL. There are a lot of different places kids, coaches could go play, coach and kids can go play than Baylor University. And I think just the con- that, that there, it's not apples to apples in that sense. And the the tragedy in Kansas City that you know about and that you speak about is one that I don't know if the whole nation even would reference and, and know anyway um, in terms of the depths of how far they came from from their comeback of when Andy Reid, you know, took over. But I bet locally that is brought up. Like if I was in Kansas City, I'd bring up exactly what you just said. I'd bring up, man, look where they were. They were 2-14. and 14. They had this happen, this happen, this happen. And bam, five or six years later, they're Super Bowl champions. I do think that's part of the story, yeah. I think those things are part of the story. Yeah, I, I guess just to agree or disagree. Um, yeah, they're, they're a part of the story, and they are what makes you, you know, what you are. And I understand that. But at the same time, um, you know, that that's that's history. And, and like sometimes I think it pays to, to live the now a little more and, and and enjoy that championship. I feel like when you bring up the past like that, whether you were to ask about, you know. Belcher, we did ask about you know Andy Reid's son passing away. I just think I don't know. I, I just I think just morally it's not because I don't know. It, 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 to me, it takes away from the present. And um, you know, I've never won a Super Bowl or I've never won a an NCAA tournament game. But like I, I just feel like that that adulation, that hard work, that that all means something. And then you know, if someone brings it up, well, hey, what happened back in, like, if you get that question, it's kind of like, yeah, but what about right now? I don't know. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But by the way, I'm not asking you to ask the question in the post game of, wow, 2003. They kind of did anyway without referencing it. All I'm saying is CBS, somewhere along the way, how about reference the fact that this is where they were? Like, I believe there will be a movie made out of Baylor basketball. They would not make a movie out of Baylor basketball with, without what happened in 2003. They would just be another national champion, and they would be the second team from Texas to win. There is no movie without what happened in 2003. But I, I don't believe you had to ask the players about it, um, or, and Jim Nance had asked about it. I'm just talking in the course of the broadcast, just a little surprise, there's no reference. And that was a concentrated thing. There's no doubt that was talked about. Like, hey... We can kind of casually reference this, but we're not going to specifically reference it. I thought that part was uh, pretty interesting. Hey, you know what else is interesting? We've got a couple mock drafts out. Uh, there, We need to talk about another player that could be coming to Jacksonville. That's the story. It's coming up next. Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690. Brent Martineau. Well, listen, if we wanted to just bump WWE by like a half hour or a few minutes, yeah. we should have just rolled your your highlight tape. Austin Lane. Oh, and there it is. 
And now Brent's playing ball. All of a sudden, Chapman throwing some high heat at me. Watch out for that suspension, Brent. Real quick, though. <laughs> Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690. This will do it. This will do it. Scott Drew's dream comes true. Coach Drew and Baylor complete college basketball's greatest rebound and rebuild with a championship. Well, there was a final call by Jim Nance and kind of what I referenced the whole last segment. Uh, Nonetheless, Baylor, what a game. What a performance. And they got after it on defense. I mean, much like UCLA in that run, I think the forgotten part of that, especially because they lost 93-90 to Gonzaga, was the defensive effort most of the tournament. Baylor, woof, turned it up a notch on defense. Uh, That is, when you can shoot the three, and you're one of the best in the country at that, and you play defense, not too many coaches around the country will get that. A combination for some success, for <laughs> yeah, sure. Not, you, know, you can try to draw that up. You can wish your team will do that. But, Austin, not too many teams want to do that. No, no. I mean, that, they looked absolutely unstoppable last night. Like, I don't think it even mattered that they're playing the Lakers last night. Like, it was just Baylor's night. They were firing on all cylinders, as they say. Hey, we're going to switch over to football, and I want to ask you, there's some mock drafts out, and I'm convinced there are three players in this draft that have already bought houses in Jacksonville <laughs> if they are big believers in a mock draft, okay? Okay. Uh, so we're going to get to that. But let's go to the phone lines early here on the day. Uh, on Tuesday, Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690. We have John hanging around on the line. Uh, what's up, John? How you doing, man? Uh, good. How are you doing today, guys? Good. What's up, John? Hey, John. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, Austin, not even two days after you shocked my mock, uh, Stone Ocean Part 6 gets announced. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, John. It's great to have you on the show, man. A little anime talk. I can't wait. Uh, the announcement is great. Now we can place our bets of what the ending theme is going to be, um, you know, for the first part of the episode. I'm, I'm going to say Adele rolling in the deep because it plays on water, but we shall see. Uh, the anime is released in 2011, so maybe some Lady Gaga or something. But, uh, but, hey, but, but one more thing, though. Keep in mind, Adele was released in 2011 as well. It was her first album. So keep that in That's mind. True. Keep that in mind now. That's true. But for my sports-related topic, sorry, Brent. Thank but you. Uh, <laughs> um, I was looking at the offensive lineman class, and it is one of the most athletic groups uh, out of any prior offensive lineman groups that have come out. There are guys coming from, like, North Dakota State, Wisconsin Whitewater. Um, what was the other person in uh, northern Iowa? And um, I was curious because we believe that, the Jaguar staff keeps saying that they like their offensive lineman staff, but if any of one of those guys that fall um, either around two or round three, would there be more temptation to take those guys in those kind of rounds rather than, say, the 25th pick in the draft? John, appreciate the call, man. Thanks for listening to Action Sports Shacks on ESPN 690. I'll go first real quick here, Austin. I think, um, I think this sets up nicely for the Jags to add depth and replaceable depth on their offensive line. I know you don't like it at 25 or maybe even 33 because you're wondering where the immediate impact is, and I appreciate that and I understand that. But there is depth in this draft, according to the experts on the offensive line. Outside of Sewell and maybe one or two others, there's not a lot of high-end talent all across this offensive line group. But there is depth, and that's where the Jags, with all their draft picks, could really cash in on some of these guys. And just in case, Jawan Taylor, just in case... Uh, Cam Robinson, uh, if this is the last year for Norwell under that contract, if this is it for Cam, now you have people in the in the stable 
that can replace those guys in years to come. Yeah, so when we talk about small school guys, you know, nine times out of ten, especially offensive linemen, um, usually it's going to take some time to develop. And I think the same thing can be said for defensive linemen as well. Just ask myself. It took me a little while. But when we talk about, you know, guys like uh, I believe it's he's referring to Dylan Redunce and then uh, the, the, the the cat from Whitewater who played in the Senior Bowl. Um, I'll have to look his name up. Uh, you know, those guys, they're not going to go first round. Okay, maybe second round, maybe third round. But to me, that's where you take those guys because they're not guys you can bring in right away and start. And the Jacksonville Jaguars don't need that. But but they obviously need depth. Now, obviously, remember they have Ben Barch, and we'll see, you know, how how his career, um, you know, transpires. Another small school prospect. But I'm all for getting that depth in later rounds and kind of developing these guys because when you develop these guys, the cool thing is you can teach them more than one position kind of like Barch has, right? Like, I think Barch is a left tackle or a right tackle. I don't think he was a guard, but they had the luxury of bringing him along slowly and teaching that position just in case where if his number gets called, he can go in, which I believe he did actually get some playing time last year. The same can be said for the guys coming out this year from North Dakota State and Whitewater. Now, the guy from North Dakota State, I mean, he's a tackle. I think he's big enough where he's definitely playing a tackle position. But the guy from Whitewater, if you want to draft him third or fourth round, teach him the guard position, teach him the center, then so be it. But it's good to have versatile guys that you can kind of create a little bit in terms of them being raw prospects. I've seen so much attempt at versatility in the NFL, and I understand it. It's just the nature of it in sports, right? You want uh, three guys in basketball that can play the two, can play the four, right? Yeah. I mean, you want guys in baseball that can pitch and hit uh, or play third base, first base, right field. DH, whatever it might be. I mean, that's just the nature of it. And we've seen the cross-training. That was a big thing uh, when I first got here to Jacksonville. Jack Del Rio was saying cross-training, cross-training. Uh, you've experienced it, you know, whether gaining weight, losing weight, trying to play a different uh, role on the defensive front. It makes me nervous, Austin, when you don't – I'd rather have a guy that I know he plays there and he's good at there. Uh, when I get the versatility, but guys that can play multiple positions – they make me a bit nervous because I feel like you're trying to find a spot for them to fit rather than I know they fit right there. And while that's not always the case, it feels like it's been the case here in Jacksonville. From Taven Bryan to other offensive linemen, Will Richardson's move from tackle to guard and all over the place. So I guess I have a little bit of hesitation about guys that can play multiple spots. i rather know, man, that guy's a left tackle, man, and he ain't budging. I'd rather have that. But you can't afford to have that, though, in the National Football League, especially from the offensive line you know, standpoint. Because, realistically, you can only have non-offensive line on a current roster. And then on game day, probably only six or seven of those guys suit up. So let's say, and keep in mind, this is professional football where guys get hurt all the time. Let's say that you get one guy goes down in the trenches during a game. Well, you better have a swing guy that can go in and play multiple positions. Or maybe, if heaven forbid, two guys in one game get injured. You know, one tears a, uh, a shoulder and, and one's got a foot problem. They both come out. You got to have guys that the, that can, you know, that, that can be swing tackles or swing guards, whatever the case may be, because you can't afford to keep 10, 11 offensive linemen on an active roster. It's just not how rosters are constructed. Yeah, I get, and that's a very good point, a reasonable point. I just feel like the guys that can play center guard, a Tyler Shatley type, have had more success than the guys that are bouncing between guard and tackle. Um, it feels that way. I don't know if the study would say that that, that way. It feels that way to me. I appreciate the call, John. Hey, I wanted to get to this, and we're going to talk more about it uh, even even after we come back from a timeout. But Hey, but by the way, John, sweet anime question. That's yeah, the first time to show. Yeah, way to sneak that in. Love that, man. Love uh, that. 
the uh, top three most likely people to be in a mock draft to Jacksonville are as follows. Okay. Trevor Lawrence, which is appropriate, no-brainer. Trevin Morig, mm-hmm. the safety out of TCU. And Pat Fryermuth, the tight end from Penn State. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like they've already lived here. Daniel Jeremiah came out with a mock draft. That's where he mocked 25 to be, by the way, is Morig. Mm-hmm. They didn't go two rounds deep. Tannenbaum, another mock draft out today. He's there at 25. What I want to do when we come back, Austin, is how much do you like that guy? Like, what do we know about him? And it feels more and more like that could be the pick for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And what does that mean for their secondary? A little Trevin Morig talk when we come back. Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690. Just a little over three weeks from the NFL draft. Mock away, people. Mock away. We'll be right back on ESPN 690. I would say right now, um, we're just trying to always add, you know, good talent to the roster and make it as competitive as we can be. I was able to reach out to, uh, to Teddy today. I was able to talk to him. I talked to his representatives, and uh, we had a really good discussion. And just uh, not to get into details, but uh, I think we're all on the same page of where we stand. And, you know, I'll, I'll let Coach uh, kind of handle where what the pecking order is and uh, what the plan is. But overall, the, the whole idea of bringing Sam in was to, to raise the competition level at the, at the position and get to where we need to be. Uh, name escapes me, but that's obviously the GM of the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, I don't know his name. I, I Scott kinda... Fitter? Yeah, there you go. Hmm. I saw that in uh, writing yesterday, and I just could not remember it. I, I must be losing that photographic memory of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Martineau, Austin Lane. All right, listen, we, we know Trevor Lawrence, okay? Yes. Mock drafts easy for the Jags. At 25, I think it can go in a lot of different ways. You could get three, four, five different positions. But the most common one has been Trevor Moore got a TCU. He's a safety who I think would patrol the middle of the field and be a free safety in the Jaguars' defense and would be what I would assume people think an upgrade over Jared Wilson. Now, yeah. listen, I'm a, I'm a Jared Wilson fan quietly. Like He's played a lot of snaps. I think he's just not – he's not super dynamic, but he's steady. Uh, so what that means – you know, is what my translation of what I just said is you can get better. You can upgrade. You can become dynamic. And maybe Morig becomes that guy. Daniel Jeremiah puts him in on the mock draft for the Jags today when he has one. By the way, we're going to have DJ on tomorrow on the show. Uh, Morig, uh, he says he's about as clean a prospect as you can get. Jags go in a lot of different ways. They go here instead. Sounds like a safe pick for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Mike Tannenbaum, who we've had on the last couple of weeks, he came out with a mock draft today. He said Morig as well uh, felt the need fit. I do think we, we had this conversation last week, Austin. There's not a lot of like open spots for the Jags, believe it or not, on a 1-15 team. They made so many moves in free agency. I would think a free safety could slide in right away day one. you got Rayshon Jenkins. I think he's going to the strong safety spot. Yeah, well, I mean, How do you well, see he, Trevor Morig? Yeah, so, you know, Jenkins played strong safety last year for the Chargers, had some success. So, I mean, right now where it sets, I have Jenkins as the, you know, the, the starting strong safety um, for your Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, with Merrick, I mean, it, to me, it's pretty obvious. You know, if you were to draft him, that's your starting free safety. Um, you know, if you watch the film, hey, by the way, Brent, I checked the tape. 
Okay. I watched <laughs> a little you. film. Very good. I, I watched a Here's little a film. t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give me a t-shirt right now. But, like, you, you notice about him, he has instincts. Um, he's kind of got that dog in him a little bit. And keep in mind, if this defense goes the route which I think it's going to go um, in a 3-4 defense that could maybe shadow a little bit what Bob Sutton had in Kansas City, you're going to be asking a lot of your free safety. Your free safety is going to have to cover the tight end every once in a while. Your free safety may have to cover the slot every once in a while. And if you go back and watch Merrick's film, he, he does all that. He, uh, against Oklahoma, um, he was on the tight end. Um, I think it was against, I can't put, I think it was against Texas. He's in the slot. So this guy's everywhere. Now, he's got great ball skills in space. He can come up and, you know, stop the run game as well. But I think if you draft him in the first round, what you're asking him to do is obviously line up on the best slot guy, line up on the on the tight end, um, and keep things fresh and keep the, the offense guessing about where he's going to go. I think he's versatile enough and free-roaming enough to be able to do that. Here's uh, the strengths according to NFL.com. Good size and plays with some alpha qualities. Desire to set a tone when stepping downhill to tackle. Overall ball production as a starter, plus overall ball production. Smooth hips to drive depth and transition with quarterback's progressions. Quick study of quarterback's intentions from deep safety. Outstanding transition to plant and spring forward without hanging up. Recognizing optimal points of entry to catch point. Forceful strikes looking to dislodge the catch. Speed for recovery or to range over the top of the race. Bates full windows underneath and looks for hungry passers. Works for top position as one-on-one defender downfield. Talented ball tracker. Background as standout special teamer in 2018. Weaknesses. Played with better overall coverage awareness in 19. Can be a little nonchalant finding position post-snap. Will take the bait on double moves. Doesn't everybody? Needs more consistent eye balance from slot or near the line. Issues over three years with angles to steep the too steep to the football, late to diagnose run when not working from center field, can be pulled off flow of the football by misdirection as down safety, gets tagged by blocking receivers in his periphery, some inconsistencies as an open field tackler. So those are the, the strengths, those are the weaknesses, according to NFL.com's draft profile on Trevon Morick. I want to ask you about something else real quick, and we don't have to deep dive yet, but maybe we go to the wall that says it all sometimes, especially if they pick them. Three safety defenses – how much is that a thing? How much is that sub-package used now? Will it be used? Was it used in Baltimore? I feel like I've seen some stuff on that as of late. You're talking about three safeties and sub-defenses? Yeah. It, it all depends what you have at your disposal. Traditionally, what you're going to have is you're going to have the nickel corner. Now, if you have a guy who, once again, we just went over this with offensive line a little bit, who can play both, maybe that safety or nickel corner, then, yeah, you could technically say that you're going to have three safeties in there. Um, but it all depends what you have at your disposal in terms of depth. Uh, if, you know, if, if Merrick was to get drafted to Jacksonville and Jerry Wilson's the, the backup safety, could you put Jerry Wilson on some sub plays? Possibly. You have to see how he does. Um, it's all about just using what you have to your advantage. I, I preach, I preach about this all the time. And I think that if you look at it right now with what they have, I mean, you know, you just upgraded your, your cornerback room a little bit. C.J. Henderson is going to be the two guy now going forward. Chad Griffin, number one. You've upgraded your safety room a little bit as well. So I'm not sure if Wilson would actually get a lot of playing time if Merrick was here, but it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility in terms of playing your best players in sub-packages. Do you have, uh, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but uh, any like what is? are there good examples of that that you've seen at work? I mean, did Baltimore do some of that? Did Seattle ever do some of that? Like what? 
I mean, nothing that really comes to the top of my head. I remember in Kansas City, I mean, you know, you had Eric Berry. And, and that's all I remember about the same position was really Eric Berry. You didn't have three saves at the same time just because Eric Berry was that good. So nothing's really coming um, to my mind off the get-go where I can remember, you know, three safeties in a package. Now, maybe if, once again, you want to consider a guy a nickel safety, that might have happened in Baltimore. But as in terms of three bona fide safeties, nothing's really coming to my mind right now. Are you concerned about the Jags' nickel spot? I mean, they've got a really good stranglehold on that position. You know, from Aaron Colvin to DJ Hayden, now it's a little bit of a question mark, although I do think Trey Herndon re-signing, he can play there. I think that was going to be the plan all along, is when they brought Trey Herndon back, he was going to be their nickel guy. Um you know, I'm trying to look at their depth chart right now. They got some of the young guys from last year that could step sure, in and sure. play there too. Yeah, we just don't know as much about them. Yeah, um, I'm not so much as worried about it. Assuming that they're going to do this three-four with a lot of cover, you know, like a lot of zone coverages, just because then it kind of makes things easier on the nickel uh, and your personnel. So. Once again, we don't know what kind of defense they're going to run, what kind of coverage and schemes and all this stuff, but I think with what I think it's going to be, I'm not too worried if Trey Hernan's going to fill that void. Hey, we got more football talk coming up. I caught up with Marvin Jones. You'll hear some of the conversation I had with the new Jags wide receiver. Go a little football, and we talked some music as well. He's got an interesting background, a heck of a story. Some of that conversation on the way next. Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690.